1934, uh, Hitler's plague of anti-Semitism was spreading throughout Europe like wildfire. Some would, some would escape it, millions would die from it, but an 11-year-old boy named Heinz would learn from it. Heinz was a Jew who lived in the Bavarian village of Firth with his family. As tension mounted between the Jews and Germans in the community, Heinz's father, a schoolteacher, lost his job and, family, and his family endured great hardship. Gangs of Hitler youth roamed the neighborhoods of Firth looking for trouble. Young Heinz learned to keep his eyes open for them. Whenever he saw a gang of troublemakers, he would cross to the other side of the street. Sometimes he would escape a fight, sometimes he couldn't. One day, Heinz found himself face to face with a Hitler youth. A beating seemed inevitable, but on this day he walked away unhurt, not because he put up a good fight, but because of what he said. Somehow he convinced the troublemaker that a fight was foolish and unnecessary. From that point on, 11-year-old Heinz learned the power of words to avoid conflict. And for a young Jewish boy living in such a volatile, anti-Semitic climate, that was a skill he used often. In fact, it was a skill he perfected. Fortunately, Heinz and his family escaped Bavaria and made their way to America. As the years have passed, his name has become synonymous with peace negotiations. Though he is still very much alive, he'll be remembered. Though he is still very much alive, he'll be remembered as one of the greatest peacemakers of this century. You don't know him as Heinz. You know him by his anglicized name, Henry. Henry Kissinger. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, do you believe he was talking about Henry Kissinger? Was that what he had in mind, someone like Henry Kissinger, when he said, blessed are the peacemakers? Is that what he was referring to? Is that what he was thinking about? I think it'd be more broad than that. You think that when I think of Kissinger, I think of like a, a specialist. And I think as, as God has given us his word, he's, he's preaching to the masses. Okay. Anybody else have anything you want to add? So we're thinking about as a peacemaker. That's the question, you know. So Henry Kissinger would have been a uh, a diplomat, uh, someone that was uh, advocating peace on human level, and was very good at it at negotiating peace. And we know there have been others throughout uh, history. I mean, if Jimmy Carter, I guess, as uh, uh, president out of this state, uh, if he had a legacy um, other than a bad economy, which May or not, may or may not have been his fault, but uh, one of his uh, concerns or, or um, part of his focus, at least, was uh, peace in the Middle East. He, he worked very diligently and gave a lot of effort toward that. So is that what Jesus is referring to? Is he, he referring to people who orchestrate, focus on uh, political, geopolitical type, you know, peace proceedings, things we would see on a human level uh, in this world or is he talking about something else that i guess that's my is question peacemaker more the, basically the condition of your heart like for you a follower of christ and you're spreading that that's your yeah Yeah, let's let's split it this way. There, there's a secular idea, yeah. and then there's a spiritual idea. Okay, we hear a lot about peace, don't we? We hear a lot about peace on a lot of different levels, 
but most all the time what we hear uh, in our culture is referring to a secular piece, a political piece, a you know, a practical piece. The surface is not inner. Yeah. You know, it's it's more pragmatic. It's it's more something that um, you know, someone think about someone going between two people who are going at it and having a fight. You know, mom and dad may have to be the peacemaker at home between two siblings. You know, pull them apart and send them on their separate ways. We see uh, policemen do this, interject themselves into a conflict in order to try to restore peace, okay? So that's the question. And, and you know the answer. I mean, Jesus was not talking about secular or practical peace. In fact, he went so far as to say what? A little later in Matthew, you're going to call me on. I thought somebody would jump in there and tell me something, but I think uh, we're looking at it. Matthew 10. Hmm. Yes, uh, chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus <clears throat> again is talking. He says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now, wait a minute. He's talking about blessed are the peacemakers. And yet here he's saying, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is he, is he, is this contradictory? Okay, well, you know, if you say no, I'm going to ask you to tell me why. <laughs> I didn't say that. Yes, you did. I was looking at it. Your mouth was moving. You said No. <laughs> So what's the difference there? What, what is, what's he saying when he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but on one hand, blessed are the peacemakers. And the truth of the matter is, he is one. Sam? The peacemaker, like, you're making peace between you and God. Is that Absolutely. the spiritual one? Absolutely. I mean, we go back to the beginning. The Garden of Eden. Was there peace there? In the beginning. Was there peace? Yeah, God looked over everything and he said what? It is good. It's perfect. God says it's good. It's perfect. So this was a place of great, perfect peace. Man walked with God, fellowshiped with God perfectly. All right? We know, based upon what Scripture tells us, that in the end, we're going back to um, peace that is a future peace and it's eternal. We're going to see this recreated. A new heaven, a new earth, a new garden of Eden, a new place where there be no more temple because God will dwell with his people, right? That's what it says. So we're going to, it's going to return. In the, min, in the middle of this, is there peace? Why not? Sin. Sin broke the peace up here, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God separated himself from Adam and Eve. Now, Scripture tells us very clearly that the state between man and God is one of enmity. Romans 5.8. That there is enmity. What does the enmity mean? Hatred. Hatred. It means man and God were enemies. That man has declared himself uh, free, a rebel. We declared ourselves a rebel to God. 
We are withdrawing from your empire. We are revolutionaries, right? We, nationally, we wear that as a badge of honor, you know. We threw a tea party. We said no taxation without representation, and we declared war on the queen, the king, and separated, okay? Adam and Eve did the same thing in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they may not have declared it in those terms, but their actions essentially did the same thing. And all of us who have descended from them brought that same rebellious attitude. We do not want God sticking his finger in our business. We don't expect him to be telling us what to do or how to do it. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's the way we function. So with that breach of peace, with that brokenness, breached the, the peace, and now there is this conflict, this enmity that rages throughout all creation. Alright? So when Christ came into this world, He came He came to make peace again. Not peace like we think of on a political landscape, but peace between God the Father and between the rebels. He came to negotiate, to, to purchase this peace. Look in Philippians chapter 2. That's right, Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Maybe it's Ephesians 2. Sorry. I knew that wasn't right. Why didn't I know that? Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our what? Peace. Peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. That's a mouthful right there. This became a wall hostility between who between us and God between us and God so he he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. This is incredible language that Paul's using. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have... How can you need the peace if you're near? What do you think he's talking about there? Do you think there were people that maybe because they followed a prescription of morality or religious fervor like the Jews, that maybe they considered themselves to be close to God, but yet they were still enemies? It was an illusion from their own mind, right? You who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through Him we have... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There you have it. So, yes, He came to be the the peacemaker.
with his work on the cross. Okay? He did what we couldn't do. We couldn't negotiate a peace treaty with God. We couldn't restore what had been lost and broken in the Garden of Eden. But Christ came to pay the penalty for our rebellion, for our sin, in order that God would forgive and that we could be restored to Him. So what's going on now? If, if Christ has reestablished the peace, does it feel like we're at peace? It's a little bit of a trick question. That's right. Here with us and God, we should know peace and experience peace. But outwardly in the world, it doesn't know that peace has been declared yet, right? We've all heard those stories about conflict, you know, between nations and a war rages and peace is declared, but some people don't get the word on time and they're still fighting the war because they didn't know that peace had been declared. And there's, that's not a great analogy, but there's still some of that going on. We still live in a culture that sin is still existing in, even though Christ has essentially declared peace, made peace. He is the peace. And those of us who are resting and trusting in Him, we experience that peace inwardly, though our surroundings and our circumstances, because remember, we're in a foreign land. The foreign land's still broken and in a mess because of sin. Christ is making a new land for us where we will dwell in peace. What has been accomplished for us and declared for us will become a reality for us in time. So, He has come to make peace. It's not a secular practical peace. These things are still controlled by, by the, old, the old nature. still controlled by the old system. The broken system. He's come to make a spiritual peace. And so that's how he can say, blessed are the peacemakers. So who are the peacemakers? Any believer. Everyone in this room, most likely, won't ask you to raise your hands, but most every one of you would probably say, I am a follower of Christ. There was a time when I put my faith and trust in Him. He moved into my life and I've been following Him ever since. Not perfectly, but I'm following Him. So, if that's true, then this is you. That's what He's saying. You are a peacemaker. Not like Henry Kissinger. Not trying to negotiate peace on a secular, superficial level. But a spiritual peacemaker. He says that we've been given this responsibility to be ministers of reconciliation. Second, Second Corinthians 5, right? Ministers of reconciliation. What does that mean? I know I'm all over the place here tonight, but we've, we've abandoned notes and everything. We're just going, all right? Yeah, look, look in Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. I mean, really, you can begin um, verse eleven. I mean, it's a long text there, but it's probably good to look at all of it. Verse eleven. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not because what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does he mean? He, he has reconciled us to himself through the cross, destroying the enmity caused by sin that separated us from God. He's brought us back to God. God says, I accept you. You're not, we are now at peace with one another. There's no longer a war between you and I. There's no longer enmity between us. He has reconciled us to God and He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? Verse 20 says to implore others. You read ahead? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> to what? To implore others to turn to God. Yeah. So this same reconciliation that we've experienced we have a responsibility to share with others, to point others to, to be peacemakers within their own hearts and lives. Now, what we run into is we encounter people everywhere we turn. We know they don't give any evidence of following Christ, per se, but they may be moral people. They may be good people. They may be philanthropic people. They may be people who help others. They may be Henry Kissinger's, you know, negotiating peace on a secular level. But inside, in here where it counts, there's still an enmity with God. There's not peace between them and God. It may look serene on the outside. We know there's plenty that, that have the evidence that it's not serene on the inside. But there are those who give off a false understanding of where they are here, right? And we have the ministry of helping them to come to terms, come to peace terms with Christ. That's why we talk about who's one. That's why we're focused on that, is that we, we understand we have a responsibility. We live in an area, an affluent area, where eight out of ten people don't make a regular habit of going to church, if they go at all. They may, some of them may go on a holiday, Christmas, or an Easter but most of the time, they're not going. So what are they saying? They're giving evidence that God's not a priority in their life, are they not? So they're giving evidence that, that they're not living in reconciliation with Him. Those who are re reconciled with God march to the beat of a different drum, right? We're aliens in this world, and so we walk according to our citizenship, which is in heaven. We're no longer on this team. We're now separated from this team and joined to this team. So we're not at enmity here anymore. The enmity is here, isn't it? Because we're dealing with we're dealing with a, an entirely different citizenship, a different allegiance, a different way of doing things, and we're no longer we're no longer driven by those things or compelled by those things. If we're in Christ, now there's plenty of people who would profess that they are on Christ's team, but there's no evidence in their life that it's true. They're still living perfectly at peace with the world, but not at peace with God. Our responsibility as people who have faith and trust in Christ, who is the ultimate peacemaker, is that now we take that peace and we share it with others so that they might come into a peace relationship with Him. Right? Have we beat the horse enough? Okay, see if I can find my place here somewhere. Um, so the peace in question here that Jesus is speaking about is more than the absence of conflict, isn't it? It's more than the absence of conflict. I mean, you can, you can get in between two parties that are in conflict and you can force them to stop the conflict, can't you? But it doesn't necessarily mean there's peace there, does it? It doesn't. I was at a uh, Atlanta Falcons football game. It's been many years ago now. Um, my wife and I came to Atlanta for the weekend, and um, we got up and went to first Atlanta to, to the early service, and then we had tickets to the Falcons football game. And so we went. We were sitting. uh had pretty good seats. They were playing. I don't know who they were playing now, but anyway, we're sitting there, and we were at the end of a row, and there was a row of about three seats next to us that were open. And so we thought, boy, this is great. You know, we got the whole row to ourselves. Well, about halfway through the first quarter, 
three guys came in. They looked like they were probably college age, and and they were uh, inebriated, uh, to say the least, and and rowdy, and uh, and they were carrying, you know, they were carrying things in their jackets and all that stuff. So there was a group of people in front of us, you know, three or four couples, and it looked like one guy that maybe had a teenage daughter, and and so these guys were just. Their mouths were filthy and foul and all that good stuff. And so it really got tense in a hurry. Well, the guy with the daughter turned around and, and asked them if they would please stop using the profanity. And, and you know how that goes, you know. He got, he got, anyway, the guy got back at him, blew back at him, pretty much said he wasn't going to. And you could just see this thing blowing up. Well, this guy in front of me had a beverage of about, you know, looked like one of, about 40 ounces or something. It's about like this. And so I could just see this thing in slow motion happening. And he's standing there looking at this guy like, I wish you had just said, okay, sorry. But he didn't. You know, he tossed the whole cup in the guy's face. And there was a war going on here. And, and me and my wife were in the middle of it, you know, trying to get away from it. And we couldn't. So it took probably three or four minutes for security to get there. It seemed like it was longer than that. So they finally came and, you know, guys' shirts have been torn off of them and, and everything and, you know, and we're reeking of beer and everything else. And, and so they start to say, what's going on? And we're all going, this guy right here is the troublemaker. So he, he takes one, but he leaves two. <laughs> he says, come with me. As soon as he's out of sight, it's at it again. You know, he came and, and restored order and peace for a moment, but as soon as he was out of sight, they were going at it again, right? That's not peace, is it? You know, that's just an interruption. That's just a time out. And so much of that's what happens on a secular level. But when we have real peace, we experience real peace with Christ, it endures. It endures because the work of maintaining it has already been accomplished through Christ. Peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers. Content and satisfied are those who are peacemakers, is what he's saying. You have your kids, you know, they get to tormenting each other. You tell him you're sorry. Sorry, but, you know, it never, it doesn't really last, does it? So Jesus is going deeper than the surface here. Peace is the absence of conflict and strife. It is also the presence of righteousness. So it's, it is the absence of conflict and strife, but it's also the presence of righteousness, of a right behavior, of a holy behavior. Because only righteousness can bring two parties together, ultimately. You know, you can, you can legislate it, or righteousness can be involved and compel it to occur. And this is what he's talking about. God's peace not only stops war, but replaces it with the righteousness that brings harmony. God's peace not only stops the hostilities, but it settles the issue. So that there's nothing lingering, nothing lasting. God's peace brings the parties together in mutual love and harmony. So hostilities are replaced with a desire for well-being instead of destruction. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he's saying if we don't have this peace, if we don't have the holiness, the righteousness that comes from this peaceful relationship, then there's no hope of seeing God. There's no hope of being in His presence. You can't have peace without compromising uh, or by compromising righteousness. Real peace is a product of of righteousness. Isaiah 48:22 says there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. So sin must be addressed, confessed, abandoned. This is what we know as repentance. Then we can know peace. And God is the maker of peace. <clears throat> Story. Divorce uh, a divorce hearing. A husband and wife arguing with each other, going at it. The 4-year-old boy is there with them. Okay? He's growing more disturbed by the moment because of the, the intensity of the conflict between mom and dad. He doesn't know what to do. Finally, he reaches up 
he takes both of their hands and he's working, 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 pulling them together until he gets both their hands together. You know? And, and in a infinitely greater way, this is what Christ did with us. Sin has made put us at enmity with God and Christ came to join us together again with Christ uh, to God to make this possible. That the sin is removed and we're now reconciled to Him and at peace with Him. And this is the peace that He encourages us or says that is our responsibility to share with others. Colossians 1.19 and 1.20 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross. Making peace by the blood of the cross. You think about it, at the cross, all of man's hatred and anger was vented toward God. At, at the cross, there was the greatest expression. You know, in Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were at enmity with God, while we were shaking our fists at Him and defying Him, Christ came to die for us. The cross is the greatest expression of that defiance where we actually killed the Son of God, put Him on the cross. So it's where man expresses, vents his anger, his hatred, his disgust with God. The Son of God was mocked, cursed, spit upon, pierced, reviled, and killed. The disciples fled, the sky flashed lightning, the, the thunder rolled, the earth shook violently, the veil in the temple was torn in two. And yet it was through all of that that God brought peace to His creation again. Even though we continue to observe aftershocks, we continue to see the things that linger, the afterglow of the war, the destruction. But for all practical purposes, it's been settled at the cross. God's greatest righteousness confronted man's greatest wickedness in Righteousness 1. So, Christ followers, that's you and I, we are the messengers of peace. True Christians who have been, uh, who have repented and believed on Him, only they are real peacemakers. Every other kind of peace is a sham. It's fake. It's phony. Uh, Brian, look up 1 Corinthians 7.15 for us. Steve, if you'll look up 2 Corinthians 5.18 that we were... First, seven fifteen, Second Corinthians five eighteen. Steve, we were just there, but we'll read it again. Uh, Linda, if you'll do Romans five eight. Stephanie, you want to do Romans five ten. James, how about Colossians three fifteen? JC, Philippians four seven. Phil, Ephesians six fifteen. Six fifteen. The only true peace comes through Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.15 But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, There are primarily four things that characterize a peacemaker. We know who the peacemakers are now. Four things that characterize a peacemaker. Number one, he or she who has made peace with God. The person who has made peace with God is a peacemaker. We've established that, right? Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We said enmity. Or while we were yet sinners, the, the term there, enmity, or we were enemies of God, is uh, very clear and it's emphatic. Uh, it's engaged, we were engaged in hostilities toward God. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Okay, we were reconciled through Christ, His work on the cross. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ 
So peace has been established, and now we have a responsibility to live in that peace, to live in the fruit of that peace. So day by day, we let the, we let the peace of Christ arbitrate in our hearts. That Colossians 3.15 passage, is, is, it has the connotation of an umpire. Okay? I know you don't think about an umpire. An umpire does what? Makes bad calls. Makes bad calls. Depending on who you're pulling for, right? <laughs> but his job is to arbitrate. His job is to make calls and he establishes something. Ball, strike, safe, out, you know, he calls it. And so what he's saying there, Paul's saying in Colossians, is he said, let the peace of Christ arbitrate, let the peace of Christ umpire in your life. Whatever circumstances you're facing. So what's the peace of Christ? How's he going to arbitrate? How's he going to umpire your life? The things that want to war, things that want to instigate war and unhappiness and dissatisfaction in us, if we let Christ and his peace do this, changes everything, doesn't it? Changes the whole, the whole perspective. We see things through the lens of Christ's peace. I mean, there is no greater hostility than that we faced with God and because of sin. And if that's been taken care of, all these other things are trivial. And they're part of this temporal existence. He has guaranteed us not only peace for the now from our sin, but peace for all of eternity, future. And so things can never be as bad as they once were ever again. Right? Once we were at war with God, once God declared war on us and was set about to pour out His wrath on us and destroy us, and we had no hope. But Christ has absolved that. Christ has pardoned us from that and has, and has established us in peace. And that peace is eternal and can't be changed now. At the beginning of our study in the Beatitudes, uh, I seem to recall that you said that the Beatitudes are really declarations of who we are. That's right. So we are already peacemakers. So being a peacemaker and having the ministry of reconciliation, in my mind, seem to be the same thing. Well, right. We said One is an outgrowth of the other. I, help me out here. I'm... Beatitudes are descriptive. They're descriptive. Yeah. Okay? They give us what do Christians look like? What are the characteristics of Christians? So what does the kingdom of God look like? Jesus said, this is what it looks like. Right. They're peacemakers. They're the meek. They're the poor in spirit. Okay? So these are describing who we are. You know? As peacemakers, we're peacemakers because we take on the identity of our Lord, we're conformed in His image, but we also have the obligation and responsibility to act the part, to be peacemakers, to proclaim the reconciliation of Christ to those we encounter, to lead them, to point them, to direct them, to urge them, to exhort them, to labor with them so that they might experience the peace that we, we do. You think about someone, if we're going to make the connection back to uh, Henry Kissinger or someone you know, who served in that Secretary of State role, who had a real penchant, a real passion for peace on a global level between nations where there's hostilities. You know, those people seem to be passionate about that. They seem to be compelled to do this. They, they genuinely want to see, you know, two nations, two countries or more put down their arms and shake hands and get along together and live in peace. They want that. Well, how much more should we want spiritual peace for the people that live around us that don't know it? You know? Who's your one? Who's your one? But here's the problem. Is that we're not compelled to be peacemakers. We, we fall prey, we, me, we fall victim 
to the same things that our culture does and that we become so involved in our own lives and living and even, hey, I'm on my way to heaven. What do I worry about everybody else for? You know, I'm a little stress and fret over that. Even so much so that we're, we're not even invested in praying for them. You know, we're not, even, we're not invested in sharing with them. We let, we let the fear of rejection or the fear of mockery or the fear of, you know, whatever it might be, but it's always bathed in fear that keeps us from being peacemakers. From but that's not a failure of being a peacemaker. That's a failure of carrying out the ministry of reconciliation. Well, but in making reconciliation and peacemaking the same thing? Yeah. Well, kind of. One is, one is a declaration. This is what you are. You're peacemaker. A peacemaker. Right. You're, you're, you're poor in spirit. You're all of these beatitudes. But we have a responsibility to be ministers of reconciliation. Right. And that's where we fail. Right. That's what I was trying to get clear in my head, and thank you for clearing that up. Tomatoes and tomatoes, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess so. I, I mean, if we are a peacemaker, if that's who we are now in nature, okay? Yeah. We're not aliens to it anymore. We are heirs yes. to this kingdom of peace. We are peacemakers. And our role is not to war. And, and this is where Christianity misses the mark sometimes, is that we find it more, we spend more time as a Christian community making war with the culture than we do trying to make peacemaking our objective. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, because. We fear what's going on out there. Here's, here's the thing, and I've become more and more convicted of this, is that it's very easy for us. What we as Christians are doing is becoming isolated from the culture. We're, we're becoming insular. We're, we are, they don't think like us. They don't appreciate us. They, you know, the, we've lost the culture. We hear that a lot. Well, that's more of a, an American nationalism than it is really a Christianity. Christianity's always been a minority. And it's always going to be a minority, you know. It's always going to face the hostilities of this world until Christ finally comes back and judges those who've rejected and, and makes all things new again. Uh, but our job is, we, we can't force the change, but we have a responsibility to be a faithful presence in the community, in the world, in the culture, even though it's alien. That's why he leaves us here, to be a faithful presence unafraid to make, make known to them that Christ is the peacemaker and we offer, we come bearing that news to make peace, that they might experience the peace that we have, to be that without becoming a part of the culture. You know, to be countercultural, but yet not be afraid of the culture. Not be withdrawn from the culture. Not be isolated from the culture. Not sitting back and criticizing and bemoaning the fact that the culture doesn't act the way it's supposed to. Well, they're lost. You know, they're lost people. They're in conflict. They're at war. They're at hostilities with God. We don't expect them to walk and act like God. And that's the big myth about America is that we think that there was a time when we really were a Christian nation. And that's bunk. We never were. At best, we had a bunch of people that were deists, which is a far cry from true Christianity leading us. They might as well have been believing in Star Wars, you know, in the good force and the bad force. That's, that, you know, that's basically what they would say they believe. But we're living in something that didn't exist, a myth from back there, and we're missing the opportunity that's in front of us. The opportunity in front of us is to be a faithful presence, proclaiming the gospel, making, trying to make peacemaker known to the people who desperately need them. We got kids that are killing themselves, taking their lives. We had a pastor in California yesterday, took his life, you know, and he was at the forefront of leading the charge and developing ministries for those that have trouble with depression and anxiety and all these things. And today, yesterday he took his life. How warped is our world? How broken is it? How much at enmity and hostility is it to be on the wrong side of this thing? And we're bebopping along, going along just like nothing's, there's no problem. Hey, I got my ticket punched. Ticket to heaven, we think. But here's the prayer. What Jesus is saying, 
The Beatitudes say that if you're not poor in spirit, you're not meek, and you're not a peacemaker, you're not in the kingdom. Because these are the characteristics of people who are kingdom people. This is what they do. So the implication and the conviction that comes back home to rest and roost with those of us who claim to be Christian is are we living? You know, are we demonstrating that we're members of this kingdom? You know, that we're a part of this kingdom. Sorry, but listen, I'm telling you. I'm about to lose my mind that we're sitting in here. We're sitting as churches are filled with people who are sitting worried about getting their own cookies. And, you know, we're, we're worried about the music we sing and what color this is going to be and what, who's going to do, who's going to be the music this week. And people are perishing all around. The world's on fire and we don't care. Right? The world's... Bombs are going off and people are dying and people are taking their own lives and killing themselves and everything. The evidence of a broken and fallen world is crumbling all around us and we're sitting over here playing jacks in the corner. Saying, oh, hold on. I got my ticket punched. That's not why he left us here. If, he, if it was just about us getting our ticket punched, we'd go on to heaven and be gone the moment we receive him. He left us here to be a faithful and a gospel-preaching, proclaiming, living people so that others might see His glory and want to, want to follow Him. Take at your own risk. <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. Making peace with yourself. Yeah, that's huge. That, you can't do that well, alone, can you? No, but I think that's... Through Jesus, you can try to learn to forgive yourself and make peace with you. Well, it's just but like... this. you can help. You and I, if we, if we are... If we get at odds, we get crossways with one another. I mean, we get really bitter over this. There's only one hope for us to forgive and restore, right? To be reconciled. That's through Christ. That's the only way. The same thing is true when you're at odds with yourself. And you, you can't well, forgive. Would you think people that like this pastor, that, and you know, I understand he had problems with depression and he was trying to help others, but he, for some reason, couldn't help himself. Right. Is it that first he couldn't make peace within himself? Well, I. I can't pass judgment on that because, listen, there, there's a lot of factors involved in this. There's physiological things going on. There's chemical things going on as well as the spiritual things when you start talking about depression and, and, and those kind of things. So it's very, very hard to make those kind of assessments. I don't think anybody can. But here's the thing. It, it's not about the fact that, that he may have been at war with himself. Maybe he had a physical problem that just wouldn't, that he, he couldn't find a way to, to deal with it, okay? But the, the point I'm trying to make is that our world is giving us all the symptoms. It, it's showing us clearly, more radically, I think, than it ever has, just how desperate the situation is, how, how broken everybody around us is. We live, we live in one of the most affluent areas in the entire world right here in this area. And yet we got teenagers taking their lives right and left. Try to do the home, try to make sense out of that. You know, if you're a humanist, if you're a secularist, how do you, how do you make that work? They got everything they want and then some, and yet they're taking their lives. Why? Because there's a lack of peace. There's a hostility and a brokenness that sin has brought upon this world. And that's what's deceiving people. They can't find contentment because they've tried, they've tried the, uh, they've tried sex, they've tried drugs, they've done partying, they've done, you know, they've got the cars, they've got everything. And what they find out is all these things just lead to more and more and more disappointment. They never satisfy. There's only one thing that satisfies. Peace with God is the only place you're going to find that. And we have that news. We have the prescription. And we do not well, we do not well if we're not sharing it. If we're not burdened to share it, we can't make them take it. 
but we certainly have an obligation to share it and to trust that God will use it to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, right? There you go. Is that an amen? All right. Got to finish. Oh, wow. I got a lot yet to do. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So let's move on. Peacemaker. We know what a peacemaker is. We know this is what we do. The reward and promise for genuine peacemakers. What does he say? They shall be called what? Sons of God. Sons of God. Both euos and technon are used in the New Testament to speak of believers' relationship to God. Technon, or child, is a term of tender affection and endearment as well as of, uh, uh, of relationship. Sons, however, is from euos, which expresses the dignity and honor of the relationship of a child to his parents. As God's peacemakers, we are promised the glorious blessing of eternal sonship and his eternal kingdom. Joint heirs with Christ. We are sons of God. Truly, peacemaking is the chief characteristic of God's children. Yeah. A person who is not a peacemaker either is not a Christian or is a disobedient Christian. Right? No other choices. A person who is continually disruptive, divisive, and quarrelsome has good reason to doubt his relationship to God altogether. Now, people don't like to hear that. I mean, I've had a couple of those conversations with people to say, look, you know what? The testimony of your life is that you're a factious and divisive person. That's not a characteristic of the kingdom of God. You know, that's a characteristic of something that's somebody that's still at war with God. Everybody has a bad moment, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to condone it, but I'm saying we all have those moments. But what happens in the aftermath? Do you double down on it? And you double down on it and you just keep doubling down on it? Or are you broken over the condition of your, your hateful attitude or whatever it may be and you're repentant over it? The, the true Christ follower is repentant and broken. That this is not who I am. This is not who I want to be. Christ has saved me to be something different. And I want to be that. That's right. Sometimes we're mad at ourselves before we even get there, right? So do you have peace with God? Have you confessed and repented of your sins? Set your hope on His finished atonement? Who's your one? You know, are you taking this seriously? Are you taking this opportunity to identify one person, one person, one person that intersects your life? Do you know how many people cross your path every week? You do the math sometime. Just start charting them. You're going to find out there are hundreds of people that cross your path. One person crossing your path that you'd say, look, first of all, I'm going to start praying for this person. I'm going to start praying for them by name that God will move on their life. Are you praying for them and for their peace in Christ? Are you seeking to share with them then how they can know the peace through Christ? Who is there in your life that displays a lack of peace in relationships with others? Somebody that you know that just doesn't seem to have any peace with anybody? How are you seeking to be a peacemaker? Maybe bring them to a point where they recognize the need for reconciliation. Peace. Okay, questions? Comments? You want to throw anything back at me? <laughs> Gave you a lot tonight. <laughs>